want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. And as we just consider just the, the testimony and the story that we just heard, I think it's, it's helpful to reflect a little bit. These stories remind us of many things. They remind us of the challenges of living in a world that is so very often marked by pain, by sickness and disease, by suffering, and by death. But it also reminds us, if you kind of trace through that story, it reminds us that amidst all the hardships of this life, there is hope to hang on to. There is the hope of healing and the hope of love. The story in many ways is a microcosm of the greater, grander story of the Bible that we have been looking at over the past few weeks. We've been diving into a series we've entitled The Promise Keeper in preparation for this Christmas season. And it's helpful to understand the big picture of the Bible to know exactly how Christmas and the Christmas story fits in and really fleshes out and unpacks the greater story that's going on all around it. You see, we learned a few weeks ago that when God created the world and he placed Adam and Eve in the garden to live and dwell in his presence, everything was amazing. Everything was going so well. In fact, everything was going perfectly The world was functioning in perfect harmony. Everything and everyone was at perfect peace with one another. Until one moment in time, sin entered into the picture unexpectedly, and in an instant, everything changed. The world was suddenly filled with chaos and calamity, with discord and death. A broken world sin-cursed, filled now with broken humanity, and at the center of everything was a broken relationship between God and the climax of his creation, humanity. But right in the middle of that brokenness, when everything seemed like it was completely unraveling, and in many ways it was because of sin, God began to unravel a plan and a promise of hope and of healing, not just for humanity, but for the entire universe. The curse of sin and death on this world would not remain forever. The power and the penalty of sin would one day be destroyed. God promised right at the very beginning in the midst of the mess of sin with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that there was someone who was going to come and he was going to put an end to all of the destruction of sin. The promised one. Born of a woman to come and make all things right, to make all things new. And it's in light of this greater story that we look now at the significance of the story of Christmas and specifically the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. So let me read for us what I know will be very familiar to most of us in this room. Let's read it together. Follow along with me beginning in chapter 2 of verse 1. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When we reflect upon Christmas, and specifically when we reflect upon this very familiar Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, we need to ask ourselves some very important questions Perhaps the greatest of all is this, for us this morning, what should my response be to this story? This Christmas, I hope that you will respond to this story in three ways. The first is this, to cherish the promise satisfied. Christmas is really, ultimately, at the very heart, all about God actually fulfilling a promise that he made to the first human beings, Adam and Eve. It was a promise that he began to unfold, as we saw last week, throughout the millennia, through significant and specified covenants or promises that he made to his people. Luke reminds us, in one sense of the significance of this promise in verse 4, you'll notice that in the birth account of Jesus Christ, we're reminded that the very reason why Mary and Joseph were heading to Bethlehem in the first place was because of their family line, their genealogy, their lineage, if you will. They were going to register for a census, and you'll notice that Joseph was in the line of David, the great king of Israel. What's really interesting is that when you look at the birth accounts in both Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, what you find in those two accounts is a list or a genealogy given for the birth line of Jesus Christ. And I think that's fascinating for a number of reasons, but it's interesting because oftentimes, you know, the genealogies are the parts of the Bible where when we come to in our Bible reading plan, we're like, oh great, I get some extra spare time this morning, I can just skip right over this. Right, to the parts of the Bible where we look at and we, we, we think, why in the world is this even here? This doesn't make any sense to me. I don't see any point to it. And by the way, I can only pronounce maybe half of the names here anyway. So They seem boring. They seem pointless. And yet, and yet, what's so fascinating is that they show up at arguably the most important event in all of the Bible, the birth of Jesus Christ. The authors of Scripture empowered by the Spirit of God, want us to understand where exactly Jesus came from and the significance of that. You see, at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, genealogies are laid out, and there's really two essential reasons why these genealogies are there 
in the book of Genesis. They serve two main purposes. The first is this. They actually introduce death into the world, in a sense. In other words, they're, they're there to be a perpetual reminder of death and the effects of sin in the world. So you have these lists where you begin to read, and so-and-so lived this many years, and then he died. And so-and-so lived this many years, and then he died. And so-and-so, and then he died. You see, there is a, a line of death that marks this world and that marks human existence, physical death that reminds us of the spiritual death that human beings experience, separation from God. And so it serves this purpose to remind us that the world we live in, including ourselves, and at the very heart of it, our relationship with God is broken because of sin. That's the world we live in. Everything we experience in the negative sense in this world is a result of sin. Death and disease, sickness and war, famine and injustice. All of this is a result of sin. It was not a part of the original design for humanity, but sin introduced them all. And that's what the genealogies remind us of in one sense. All of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the relational strife, all of this a result of rebellion against God as king. But genealogies serve a second main function. Running parallel to the genealogies of death, God in his grace gives us a running genealogy of life. You see, Matthew begins his gospel, the very first verse of Matthew reminds us of the genealogy of Jesus, and here's the very first words spoken of, of the birth of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham, drawing a direct link to the father of faith and to the great king of Israel, drawing a link to the promises of God. In Luke chapter 3, this gospel that we're in this morning Luke actually traces the genealogy of Jesus back further, and he ends his genealogy as he starts with Jesus and backtracks by saying that Jesus Christ is not only the son of Moses, of, of uh, excuse me, uh, Noah, but he is also the son of Adam. And here's where it ends. Listen to this: the son of God. The promised seed that will destroy the serpent and reverse the curse of sin. This was the promise that God made to Adam and Eve, that she would have a child and he would destroy the serpent and the effects of sin in the world. And so the genealogies that are traced throughout the scriptures are a reminder, listen, that as bad as things got because of sin, the promise remained and that God would be faithful to keep his promise. You know, I like to think of the promises of God throughout Scripture, especially when it relates to Jesus, kind of like a, a strand of light bulbs. You know, you can think of the Christmas lights that you put around your tree. And it's interesting that God, at the beginning, he makes this promise to Adam and Eve, and he sets the trajectory of salvation and redemption for humanity. And, and every time, you know, the, he, he starts the line here in Genesis 3.15, and he begins to unravel. Listen, so while, while the world is unraveling because of sin, all of a sudden God takes this thread of light, and he begins to unravel this spool of lights, and you come across to the first light bulb. 
And there it shines forth just a, a glimmer of light, a glimmer of hope to the world where God is saying, listen, I see the darkness around you, but the darkness will not prevail forever. And then he unravels it a little more and he gets to Abraham and the covenant that he made in Genesis 12. And he says, listen, Abraham, let me get more clear with you about how I'm going to do this. You will have a child and your offspring will become a blessing to all the nations. You see the light bulbs are just shining forth hope. And then you move a little bit further amidst the darkness, another little light as God calls the people of Israel and he says to them, listen, I will be your God and you will be my people. Through this nation, I will bring about a prophet greater than Moses. I will bring about a savior of all the nations, one who will be my perfect son. And then it unravels a little further and you get to the promise he made to David that there will be one who sits on the throne of David who comes in his family line and he will rule and reign for all eternity and he will establish justice and righteousness in the earth. Sin will have no more power and no more reign. And all throughout the scriptures, God is unraveling these this cord of lights and showing through all the prophets, all of, as Jesus said, the law and the prophets that are pointing towards a greater light that is to come. And while the world, again, is unraveling, God is unraveling his plan to save it. Little by little and bit by bit, each bulb is a reminder of God's promise to solve the problem of sin through the birth of a child. But as you get towards the end of this string of lights, all of a sudden in the Bible, everything goes silent. For 400 years, there is virtually no one who speaks on behalf of God, no prophets until John comes and begins to declare the way for the Lord. And at a moment in time, around 2,000 years ago, as we're reminded by Galatians 4 and 4 verse 5 through already, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, At the proper time, the time that God had established, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, God, at the proper time, established a way to bring us back into perfect relationship and fellowship with him. The promise is satisfied with the birth of Jesus Christ And by the way, do you see that when you read through the scriptures in the New Testament, that after you get to the birth of Jesus, there are no more genealogies in the rest of the Bible? It's because all of the genealogies have been pointing to one place. They've all been trying to shed light on one individual. And that individual has arrived, the promised one, his name is Jesus. And all of those genealogies are reminding us of the promise that God made at the very beginning to save the world. And this is a call for us to cherish the promise satisfied in Jesus Christ, to realize the magnitude and the scope of God's saving plans, the lengths he would go to, and what he would do to come and rescue us. You see, Christmas reminds us that God, the God of the universe, made a promise to bring hope and to bring healing first to us as individuals and second to the universe as a whole. And if we truly contemplate this and consider the the, the magnitude of what God is promising to do, this should evoke a second response in us this Christmas. So as we cherish the promise satisfied in Jesus, notice this secondly, that we need to celebrate the precious Savior. 
It's one thing to realize how God is working out his plan and to be caught off guard and to stand in awe and to stand amazed at what he has done. It's a whole other thing for us to truly, genuinely celebrate the very heart of what God is doing at Christmas. You see, here is the end of the string of lights. At my house on our Christmas tree, if you follow the string of lights around the tree, they start at the bottom, and as they wind their way up towards the top, they narrow until you get right to the very tip of the tree. And I don't know what you have on your tree, but on my tree, there is a giant, bright, blazing star. And every time I look at that star, it reminds me that one day, 2,000 years ago, God put a blazing star in the dark night sky, hanging right over Jerusalem, pointing to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. It was a light that God would use to draw people to himself. God wants to make it clear that he is indeed the light of the world And that this day, Christmas, and this season is truly a season of celebration. It's fascinating, when you read through the accounts of the birth story of Jesus, both Matthew and Luke add in uh, slightly different details here and there, and they fill out the picture. I always find it interesting who came to see Jesus. You know, Matthew tells the story of the wise men who come to see Jesus, and the wise men travel from such a far, far distance I mean, it would take them years to get from where they were to Bethlehem. These men were mighty men. They were nobles. They were wealthy. It's possible that they were even kings in their own land. They certainly had positions of prominence and prestige. And yet here they come, and they march in to see this little baby Jesus who they know virtually nothing about. The only thing they know is that this is not just a king. This is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And they bow down and they give him gifts that are fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the others who come, they're kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. You have the shepherds that we read about in Luke in in verses 10 and 11. Here they are, they're out watching their flocks by night. They're standing on the chilly hillside looking over the flocks. Shepherds, I mean, that wasn't a great job in Israel. They were marginalized in society. That was a dirty job. They weren't very well respected. They were very low on the social ladder. And yet, God shows up to these men. The lowest of the low, and he shows up in true form with angels in the sky. It reminds me this time of year, when it comes specifically to Christmas, that the light that we look at in Jesus Christ is a light that draws all those to himself. Near and far, those who are cast off and those who are in the world's eyes prestigious and powerful, the Jews and the Gentiles, all of them are welcome. The great and the small, the noble and the lowly, all are welcome. None who come in humility and surrender are shunned by Jesus Christ. In verse 10, let me just remind you again, it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
This child is a gift to the world. And this is a celebration that is offered to the world to come and join in the celebration of the king. I love what the angel told Joseph to call him. He said to him, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is the one that they had been waiting for from the very beginning of the word of God. He is the curse breaker. He is the cross bearer. He is the covenant bringer. The angels stand in awe and they come in blazing form in the night sky singing the praise of God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. There's another individual, we didn't read about him yet, but he's referred to in Luke chapter 2 a little bit later. There is a man who is in the temple and as the law taught, Mary and Joseph were to bring Jesus into the temple. And here in the temple, there's this man by the name of Simeon. Simeon is an old man. I mean, really old. He's actually so close to dying. He's been calling out to the Lord and saying, God, would you just spare me a little longer? And God, if, if, if you would allow me to live long enough to gaze upon the promised Messiah, I would be so grateful. And all of a sudden, in walks Mary and Joseph holding baby Jesus. The word of God tells us that Simeon was a man who was devout and righteous. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And as soon as Jesus walked in, all of a sudden, I believe the Spirit of God just said, that's the one. And he walks over to Mary and Joseph and he grabs the child. I'm convinced this is where the Lion King, the Lion King stole this from the Bible. And he holds up the child. Okay, he probably didn't hold him like that, but... He pulls this child in close to his chest. I'm sure he put him right by his heart. And he held this child. By the Spirit of God, he spoke these words in verse 29. He said this. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He held this precious baby Jesus in his hands and he knew, he knew as he gazed into the eyes of Jesus, listen, he was looking directly into the eyes of salvation. He knew this was the hope for the world. There is a celebration taking place in the heart of Simeon. There is a celebration taking place in the heart of the shepherds and the wise men as they gazed upon this child because they understood this truly all-important truth that the precious Savior of the world was finally here. But you know his lowly birth in a stable, terrible conditions cast out because there was no room for him. You know, all of that reminds us and points towards his lowly death. You see, salvation would come the way that God promised it would. And the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 was that this child would be born of Adam and Eve, it would be from their line, and this child, listen, he would crush the head of the serpent, but while doing so, his own heel would be bruised. In other words, the victory that this child would win over sin and death would come at a cost. 
It would not be easy. It would be filled with trial. It would be filled with suffering. It would be filled with pain. Before he could be crowned king, he must suffer as a servant. And this king suffered greatly. The serpent would bruise his heel. Jesus Christ would have a mock crown of thorns placed upon his head and driven in deep. He would be flogged and his flesh torn off of his back. He would be spat upon. He would have his beard ripped out of his face. And ultimately, he would be hung to a piece of wood. And as he hung on that cross, he would suffer not just the mock and ridicule of man, not just ostracized from those around him. He would actually suffer alienation from God. He would have the full wrath of God for sin poured out upon himself. In love, he would hang on a piece of wood and pay the full price of sin. The offspring of the virgin's womb, listen, would crush the head of the serpent. The cross would be the weapon the serpent would use to bruise the heel of Jesus. But, listen, in an act of divine irony and justice, Jesus would use the cross to crush the head of the serpent. It is here that hope is realized. It is here in the cross of Christ that healing actually begins for the world. You see, the strand of lights all pointed to the greatest blazing light of them all, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. But the story doesn't end here. And if you stop the story here, you're actually missing out on the very purpose of the story. You see, the significance of this day 2,000 years ago has ongoing ramifications for us today. It has ongoing ramifications for you. You see, what you do with this child has consequences, not simply for your eternity, but for the eternity of the world. And so, as we celebrate the precious Savior this Christmas, I want to encourage you with this final response, and that is this, to consider the progressing significance. There is ongoing significance for Christmas in our lives. You see, the Savior has come to save. That much is clear And he has risen with healing in his wings as we have already sung. The healing has begun, yes. Jesus demonstrated this in his earthly ministry. One of the things that Jesus did is he would heal a multitude of people. People flocked to Jesus Christ while he walked on earth in his earthly ministry. And one of the reasons was because he offered them physical healing. He healed them of all kinds of sickness and disease. He healed them of blindness and lameness in their legs. He healed the leopards. He even raised the dead to life. He was teaching in those miracles the world that he had come to heal what was broken. That he has brought healing and that he is bringing healing. His first coming was about setting humanity right with himself. Christmas was about God in flesh coming, living and dying and rising from the grave, conquering sin and death, listen, so that you could be reconciled back to God, so that your broken relationship with God could be fully healed. But salvation and healing has only just begun. 
We look around at this broken world. We experience the effects of sin daily, and we need to be reminded even at Christmas that the day is coming when God's full and final healing will arrive. We are right now at this moment awaiting the returning king. And when he comes, we will be restored to him in full, but not just us, all of the creation that groans to be made right. So this Christmas, I wonder if you'll consider where you find yourself in his story. It's not yet complete, because the gospel has ongoing significance. You don't have to simply enjoy this Christmas, the seasonal nostalgia You don't have to enjoy simply the commercialization of the holiday and all of the fun traditions that maybe you and your family have. You don't have to simply enjoy the time off work, although I encourage you to do so, or the time with family and friends, which is also a good thing, or simply the abundance of food and gifts that you will give and will be given to you. You can actually, this Christmas, by the grace of God, enjoy Christmas the way God intended you to enjoy it, by being joined to his story. Your genealogy, in other words, can actually be tied into his. The genealogies stop with Jesus, but everybody who comes to faith in Jesus Christ now gets added into that geology, and your line, your relationship is drawn through Jesus all the way back through the millennia, and it ends not just with the son of Adam, but you too can become a son of God. That broken relationship can be restored as God in his kindness brings you back into fellowship with him. You know, when God called the wise men, they obeyed and came. It didn't matter how hard the journey was gonna be, it didn't matter how long it was gonna take them, how much pain and suffering they had to go to on the way, they knew where they needed to get and they needed to get to Jesus. And when he called the shepherds in the night sky, though they were just around the corner, a stone's throw away, so to speak, the word of God tells us in the Gospel of Luke that they made haste to go and see Jesus. They they left their stuff behind and they beelined it right to Jesus. They knew exactly where they needed to get to. They needed to get to Jesus. They came and they received salvation, both of them the same way, by bowing to Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this morning, you can too. You can repent of your sins and place your faith in him. You can run to Jesus and he'll stand there with arms open wide. You can follow the strand of light right back through the millennia and let Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, make you too a son of God. Every sin, listen, every sin and every regret Every bit of guilt and every bit of shame you have ever experienced can be wiped clean today because of the message of this baby who became for us a savior and became for us a king. And if you are already in Christ this morning, consider the significance for you today. It doesn't end here and now with a simple celebration and singing Christmas carols. It doesn't end with opening gifts tomorrow morning with your family and enjoying a meal together. 
It has ongoing significance because in God's kindness and grace, he has now made you a light. You have become a light, and you are in the light, and now in the grace of God, listen, you have the distinct privilege of holding forth the light so that all might see in the midst of the darkness of this world that there is hope and healing to be found in Jesus Christ. Amen? So let your light shine so that all the world might see and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let this be the motto of your life. Let it be the motto of this Christmas for you. Put Christ at the center. Proclaim the hope and joy of salvation to all the world. That's what Christmas is all about. And as we were reminded with that testimony that we heard earlier, listen, none of us, not one of us knows what tomorrow will bring, but I trust you can say this this morning, but my hope is in Jesus Christ. That is our joy this Christmas season. Regardless of what you're facing, regardless of the difficulties of life and the circumstances that you're in, maybe everything's going well right now in your life for that, praise God. But one of the things we celebrate this Christmas season is that our joy is not found in the things of the world. Our joy is found in the Savior of the world. I hope that's your joy this Christmas. I hope it becomes your joy for all eternity. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are kind to remind us this morning of the hope that you give us in Christ, of the healing that comes only from you. Father, you've been so faithful, and at Christmas, we want to pause and reflect upon the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, in your grace, you have held forth the light of Jesus in the midst of the darkness that we live in. And Father, we thank you at Christmas that, Lord, in this cursed world, you were willing to become a curse for us so that we might have hope and healing and that we might find joy both in this life and in the ages to come. So, Father, we pray now that you would help us to live as lights in the world. Pray, Lord, for those in here who are living in darkness and do not know the joy of living in restoration and reconciliation with you. And, Father, I pray that their joy would not be found in the things of the world this Christmas season, but instead, even now, Lord, that they be found in the Savior of the world. Thank you for holding your arms open wide to us. Thank you for the joy that we have in Jesus. Be blessed now, Lord, as we respond and give you praise that is due your name. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior and our King, and all God's people said, amen.